Hi, this is Monica Lopez. We're continuing our special mini-series about immigrants and elections, and you're about to hear part two. Make sure you're the first to get access to part three. Sign up for our newsletter at radioproject.org, and we'll let you know when it's ready. This week on Making Contact. There is no reason to deny immigrant families a voice. There is no one who has their rights lessened because other people have gained their rights. We do not become diminished when other people have rights that all of us should be afforded. For better or worse, immigration and immigrants have been center stage during the 2016 election cycle. It's also the first presidential election in 50 years where voters will not have the full protection of the Voting Rights Act, and some voter advocates are worried. There's going to be over 100,000 new, newly registered voters voting for the very first time, many of them minorities. How are they going to be treated at the polls? How, is, how are the counties and the state and volunteer groups going to get the word out about the rules for voting? In this installment of our series on immigrants and elections, we look at barriers that could keep immigrants from making it to the polls. There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. With those words, President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced landmark protections for the rights of voters. Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In coming years, the law would expand to include other protections. But in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key civil rights provision in the law. It found that no longer do state and local governments with a history of discrimination have to get pre-approval from the Department of Justice to change their election systems. In this exchange from 2013, Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor engage with attorney Burt Ryan during oral argument for Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder. Congress said up front, we know that the registration is fine. That is no longer the problem. But the discrimination continues in other forms. Let, let me speak to that, because I think that that highlights one of the weaknesses here. On the one hand, Justice Breyer's uh, questioning, well, could Congress just continue based on what it found in 65 and renew. And I think your question shows it's a very different situation. Congress is not continuing its efforts initiated in 1975 to allow So the reason Section 5 was created was because states were moving faster than litigation permitted to catch the new forms of discriminatory practices that were being developed. As the Court struck down one form, the states would find another. And basically, Justice uh, Ginsburg calls it secondary. I don't know that I call anything secondary or primary. Discrimination is discrimination. And what Congress said is it continues, not in terms of voter numbers, but in terms of examples of other ways to disenfranchise voters, like moving a voting booth from a convenient location for all voters to a place that historically has been known for discrimination. Alabama, because of its history of voter discrimination against black people, 
was one of nine states mandated under Section 5 to get prior approval to change its voting rules. Local jurisdictions in six additional states were also required to get pre-approval. For the first time since 1965, voters this November will participate in a presidential election without those protections. We go now to Arizona, one of the nine states that was required to get federal approval to change their election systems. There, we look at two immigrant families, one Mexican, the other Filipino, and what members of different generations have to say about their political views this election. While voter rights groups consider the possibility of Latinos turning Arizona blue, as Valeria Fernandez reports, voter suppression in the historically conservative state is still a concern after a debacle during the primaries. That question means that, are you willing to take oath of allegiance of, to the United States? Means are you ready to fight for the United States, to do everything good for the United States? Araceli Becerra holds a stack of practice flashcards in front of the classroom to prepare her students for the U.S. citizenship test. Not long ago, she was sitting in their place with anticipation. It's been 30 years since she left Mexico and came to the country without legal documents. This election is her first chance to vote for the next president of the U.S. Just to hear on TV that someone wants to build a fence between Mexico and the United States, it makes me think they want to fence us in. It's not so much for stopping those who come, but to humiliate those who are still here. A lot of expectation rise on the shoulders of Latino voters like Becerra and her newly sworn American citizen students. Arizona is a historically conservative state. The last Democrat that won there was Bill Clinton in 1996. There are one million Latinos eligible to vote in Arizona, representing 22 percent of the electorate. This election, the state could turn blue if Latinos show up to the polls. In 2012, only 50 percent of those that could vote register, and from those, only 40 percent turned out. Becerra's 19-year-old son, Samuel, might be among those absent at the polls this year. My mom already knows that. There's a possibility of me not voting. She's upset about that, but then again, it's my right, right? If I want to uh, practice it or not, I mean, it's a, it's a choice if I want to vote or not. Samuel's mom is not the only one worried that he won't participate. Voter turnout is a concern for political parties and voting rights groups. They are reminding voters these elections are not just about who gets to be the next president. This will be Samuel's first presidential election, just like his mom's. He's Christian and leans Republican, but he was throwing his support behind Bernie Sanders because he felt that Sanders was trustworthy and experienced. He describes Trump as racist and divisive. I don't want Donald Trump to become president, but also having Hillary Clinton become president is very dangerous. It's, it's a double-edged sword at the moment. He said he doesn't trust Clinton after he overheard in the news that the Democratic National Committee gave her campaign advice on how to defeat Sanders. Becerra, a Sanders supporter herself, says Latino voters are between a rock and a hard place and they must pick the lesser evil. She hopes her son makes up his mind and votes. El pueblo latino estaba muy confiado. Latinos were comfortable, at ease. Now you have a job, now you are saving a few dollars. I have a house, my car, I'm content. 
Then this man comes and starts saying this and that about us, and he awakens our Mexican pride, because we're not that. He slapped us in the face, and we're going to return the gesture by voting. Becerra is talking about Trump, who has ignited many Latinos like her former students to register to vote. She belongs to Lucha, a group that is part of the One Arizona Coalition that registered over 110,000 new voters by the beginning of October. While Latinos are frequently the focus of voter registration campaigns in the Southwest, other minority voters could contribute to a change in color for Arizona, from red to blue. There are 287,000 Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Arizona, and almost half are eligible to vote. The news is on at the Filipino-American Journal. Leonardo Aromin founded the newspaper almost 20 years ago. Aromin has been following the election closely, aware that Filipino voters are traditionally conservative. But many are upset over remarks made by Trump early August in Maine, when the candidate said countries where terrorists come from should be banned from getting visas. He cited the case of a Filipino man detained for alleged terrorist activities in the U.S. It looks like uh, Filipino voters are offended by that. And, uh, of course, some people I've, I've talked to for the purposes of the newspaper said, well, I will just not vote this year because I'm a Republican. They said, yet I don't like the candidate. I cannot vote for Clinton likewise because it's a Democrat or whatever it is. So there are maybe some Filipinos who would rather stay at home on November elections. Filipinos are the largest group among Asians in Arizona, with a population of 59,000 people. Aromin says Filipino families are divided on politics in this election more than ever, and the lines get deeper across generations, sometimes going in surprising directions. We'll continue with the meeting, but we are primarily talking about the Filipino-American heritage celebration. At the Halo Halo Filipino restaurant, James Campbell and his wife Florita, both in their 70s, join a Filipino committee to plan a festival. They are very active in the community and agree most of the time. But when it comes to politics, they don't see eye to eye. It's very lively, but we have uh, maybe two hours that it's quiet because I stay with my facts and my wife stays with uh, CNN and PBS because that's where the Democrats are. So it's good. We have a time for silence. Campbell, a longtime Republican, said he will cast his vote for Trump because he thinks he's an astute business person. And Campbell is loyal to his party. But his wife, Florita, is simply enraged that her husband will do so. She became a Democrat in the 70s after a bad experience when she was berated by someone while working at a jewelry store. And she looked at me and said, don't, don't put your dirty chink hands on my merchandise. That was the very first time I was confronted so frontally with someone who hated me. She didn't know me. She didn't know who I was, where I came from. Just because I looked different, she hated me. And from then on, I know how it feels. It must feel to be discriminated upon. Trump's rhetoric takes her back to that memory. But there's another reason. She has a granddaughter with disabilities, and she was upset when Trump mocked a journalist with disabilities during one of his speeches. If it were my son who said that, I'd slap him until my hand would fall off my wrist, because that's very rude. 
it's not only it's not only unkind it is also there's no compassion whatsoever on a sunday florita has a visit from her grandson nate carlo who she has encouraged to vote but would never tell him how you want some pollo asado <laughs> He is 18 and he is considering voting Republican because he feels the party aligns better with his Christian religious beliefs. A lot of what Trump says resonates with him. The situation that we're in now with Syrian refugees and ISIS and such calls for extreme, or not extreme, but just necessary actions. In a time like this, I could see why he would think it's necessary to highly regulate immigration and a lot of people think that might be too far. He confesses he hasn't been able to keep up to speed with information on the candidates. Beyond muddied information or disappointment with the pool of candidates, there might be something else keeping minority voters from making it to the polls. Since the last presidential election, Arizona has reduced 70% of its polling places. This resulted in a fiasco for many voters who waited in line for over five hours to cast their ballots during the 2016 primaries. Election authorities in Maricopa, the largest county in the state, said they were projecting more people would vote by mail. The situation prompted an investigation by the Department of Justice. We were anticipating problems this year because this is going to be the first presidential election that Arizona will have uh, in which we are not going through preclearance from the Voting Rights Act, which means it's going to be the first presidential election that the Department of Justice will not have oversight. So we anticipated having some problems, but nothing like this. Sam Strauss is the executive director of the Arizona Advocacy Network, a group that works to protect voter rights. There's going to be over 100,000 new, newly registered voters voting for the very first time, many of them minorities. How are they going to be treated at the polls? How, is, how are the counties and the state and volunteer groups going to get the word out about the rules for voting? There is one more hurdle for voters who traditionally relied on volunteer organizations to pick up their ballots and deliver them to election officials. A new law being challenged in court makes it a felony for volunteers to continue to do that. While some election officials say they won't enforce it, advocates are worried it will create chaos on election day and hurt long-standing efforts to get Latinos and other minorities to vote. This new law does make exceptions for family members, household members, caregivers, and I don't know how a poll monitor is going to enforce the law. Poll monitors are not allowed to speak to voters. And, you know, what are they going to do? Call the police because somebody is delivering people's ballots? that could very easily turn into voter intimidation. Problems with voter suppression are not new to Arizona. In 2004, voters passed a measure that required people to present proof of citizenship to vote and voter identification at the polls. Implementation of the new law resulted in tens of thousands of eligible voters not being able to register in time for elections in 2005, and thousands of others being unable to vote on election day. This time around, voter registration groups are doing all they can to educate minority voters about different ways in which they can cast their vote ahead of election day, or even on the very day if they forget to mail it. And we are calling today to have yourself sign up for the permanent early voting list. On a Saturday afternoon, Marta Rivas is one of the 14 volunteers at a Nation Pacific Community in Action phone bank. She's calling Asian voters so they signed up to vote by mail. It's a prepaid return envelope, so all you would have to do is stick it in the mail. 
There are other volunteers on standby. They speak Korean, Mandarin, Vietnamese, and Japanese. According to the Asian and Pacific Islanders Boat Civic Engagement Organization, in 2012, 69% of Asian Americans received no contact about the election from border mobilization groups, compared to 64% of Latinos. Big Reed is the civic engagement manager coordinating the phone bank. And this is the first time they're able to do outreach. He says this year, those calls are more important than ever. A lot of the older generation has trust issues with the government, and they just don't know what's going on, right? So a big part for us is educating them, letting them know that we have constitutional rights, that we have these privileges, that this is our civic duty to actually get out and do this, that we actually have a voice that can be heard and listened to. Sometimes the older immigrant generations are the ones doing the teaching with millennials. Read up on it and, uh, you know, because um, it's very important in one's life not to only be trustworthy, but also most of all to be compassionate and empathetic. Compassion and empathy means putting your shoes in someone else's place, living inside their skin and moving around it. And then you can make your decision, whatever it might be. And that's something that I think is really important and I'm definitely going to do. Okay, good. Like I was saying, uh, I don't have a very well-informed opinion, so I would like to figure out more about everything before I really decide. Florita never spoke about her political opinions with her grandson up until this election. And in that regard, she's just like Araceli Becerra, the citizenship teacher. When it comes to voting, it's not just about showing up, but knowing why. For Making Contact, this is Valeria Fernandez in Phoenix, Arizona. You are listening to Making Contact, part two of our mini-series on immigrants and elections. Coming up, we'll hear updates from voter rights groups in their fight against voter suppression, and a report on one city's measure that could give non-citizens access to the voting booth. Voting rights groups across the nation have been watching and preparing for this election through the primaries and at key deadlines to prevent problems with registration and at the polls. What voter suppression looks like in Georgia is death by a thousand cuts. Nse Ufat is executive director of the nonpartisan New Georgia Project in Atlanta. From April 26th until July 26th, um, which is a 90-day period, most of the Board of Elections around the state of Georgia stopped processing voter registration forms. Despite them rescinding the 90-day blackout period on the state level, many of Georgia's counties still refuse to process voter registration forms. And so after July 26, we are looking at states who are having to hire temporary staff and additional, get additional um, sort of workers in order to process an extraordinary backlog uh, that was created by their policy decisions. Maria Rodriguez is head of the Florida Immigrant Coalition. There are hundreds of thousands of legal permanent residents and nearly one million undocumented immigrants living in Florida. And even though they're integral to our communities and our economies, in fact, they're the backbone of agriculture and tourism in many ways, they're obviously disenfranchised. 
So we have another million people who are legal permanent residents who have not yet become citizens. It's about 815,000 people. We work very diligently to build the capacity and the scale to help those people become citizens, partly because it's good for them, uh, increases their income between 8 and 11 percent, but it's also good as an aggregate for the economy and to build um, the social cohesion and the uh, civic participation of those communities. Both Florida and Georgia were preclearance states under the Voting Rights Act. We now head back to the West Coast and the city of San Francisco, which may be the next major city after Chicago and New York, to allow non-citizens to vote. If approved, a local measure would allow parents with children in the San Francisco public schools to vote for the Board of Education, whether they're citizens or not. Paulina Velasco went searching for what this would mean to Latinos living in the San Francisco Mission District. Marco Ponce is picking up his youngest son from school. It's a hot, sunny Thursday afternoon in the Mission District of San Francisco. Marco is pointing out the parents anxiously lined up against the wall. Children swarm the courtyard. I met Marco's son, who's telling me the great things about second grade. Doing um, art, like a lot of fun stuff. My favorite is math, and my really favorite is to do with coins. The Mission District in San Francisco is mostly Latino. Marco moved here 20 years ago from Peru. The neighborhood is quickly gentrifying, but its Latino community still suffers from a lack of resources, especially in schools. Of the 10 lowest performing public schools in all of California, four are located here. I question me why from one school to another school is different, because the curriculum is the same. Why is some other school is behind other school? Every school should be a good school, because you see all the teachers, they graduate from Harvard, UC Berkeley, and I find out too is because some school, they have a parent support, they fight for the kids. So Marco decided to fight for his kids too. He got behind a local measure that would allow immigrant parents without U.S. citizenship to vote for school board members. Here he is at their meeting in September. Buenas noches, mi nombre es Marco Ponce. Soy padre de tres niños. Estoy... The board is considering the measure that Marco is supporting, Proposition N. Commissioner Sandra Lee Fewer reads out a motion to approve it. In support of Proposition N, non-citizen voting in school board elections, whereas about 283,000 immigrants live in San Francisco, accounting for 35% of the population, and whereas 54% of children in San Francisco have at least one immigrant parent and 34% of households are headed by an immigrant, and whereas... And the list goes on. Fewer mentions that new immigrants used to be allowed to vote in 40 of the 50 states, Chicago, New York, when it still had a board of education, and six cities in Maryland have given non-citizens a school board vote. Massachusetts is waiting for approval from its legislature. Non-citizen voting is technically legal. While being a U.S. citizen guarantees your right to vote, not all those who vote have to be citizens. And the California Constitution permits charter cities like San Francisco to make these determinations. Our immigrants in this community are our families, they're our children, uh, they are our neighbors, uh, and we want them to participate fully in our institutions, including our public schools. 
Matt Haney is the president of San Francisco's Board of Education. He supports Prop N, which is being proposed for the third time to San Francisco voters. In 2016, it was put on the ballot by County Supervisor Eric Marr. In 2004, we barely lost, and I think if it weren't for the billionaire Republican Don Fisher um, pumping in a lot of money, we probably would have won. Um, 2010, David Chu, our now assemblyman, was key in putting that one forward. And that one was a low, low interest, low turnout election compared to now. The proposition lost in 2004 by two percentage points and in 2010 by five. Ten out of the 11 supervisors voted to put it on the ballot this year, where it'll be one of a whopping 24 local measures. But Eric Marr is feeling positive that it will reach the majority it needs to win. I think I and many of the parent leaders, and we're building a multi-ethnic coalition led by parents, and we feel that um, the Donald Trump anti-immigrant racist, sexist um, sentiments at the national level, often San Francisco voters um, viscerally and politically um, resist. No one present at the Board of Education meeting expressed any opposition to Prop N, but President Matt Haney addresses those who think voting is a privilege reserved for citizens. There is no reason uh, to deny immigrant families a voice. There is no one who has their rights lessened because other people have gained their rights. Uh, we do not become diminished when other people uh, have rights that all of us should be afforded. And I think that uh, we actually all benefit from their inclusion. I will call vote. Ms. Haney? Yes. Thank you. Ms. Wilson? Yes. Ms. Fewer? Yes. Following comments from a handful yes. of parents and school board commissioners, Haney rounds out the unanimous school board vote in support of Prop N. Mr. Haney? Yes. That's unanimous. Back at Mosconi Elementary, I'm at the weekly parent-teacher meeting early on Friday morning with Marco. He's challenging the principal of the school to explain how the money for after-school programs is being allocated. He wants it to be given to the English as a second language programs at the school. It's here that I meet Miriam, one of many moms I talk to who are undocumented. She moved to San Francisco over 16 years ago from Mexico, and three of her five children are in public schools in the mission. I ask her and her friend Mari if they would vote if they could. Of course we would, they say, and Miriam tells me what it would really mean to her as an immigrant. I never really had plans to emigrate, you know, and it took me a long time to realize how much I had lost. As an immigrant, you ask yourself, where do I belong? I don't belong in this country, I don't belong in my own, and sometimes it's also hard to find a community to support you here. So that loneliness and all that is something that's very hard in this country. And if one doesn't even have the right to vote, it feels like one doesn't exist. So I think that it's fair that we're given this opportunity. It's really fair. People like Marco are trying to give this opportunity to people like Miriam. He's a citizen and one of the parent leaders for Prop N. Blanca also wants to represent her community at the ballot boxes this year. She's been in the U.S. for 24 years. She talks to me outside Mosconi where her daughter's in the fifth grade. I'm happy because my husband and I became citizens of this country last month, July 3rd. 
Yes, for me, what interests me is voting because I don't like the attack happening against the immigrant community because there is a lot of racism. And I think that people that like Donald Trump, they forget that we have all been, we all are immigrants. It doesn't matter that they have a lot of money or that some are poor, but they forget that everyone is a descendant of immigrants here. So I like that my husband and I became citizens to vote, to support all those people who don't have a voice, who don't have a vote. Blanca and Marco will be voting to enfranchise their fellow immigrant parents, with the ultimate goal of improving schools in the mission for everyone's kids. In the Mission District of San Francisco, for Making Contact, I'm Paulina Velasco. That's all for this edition of Making Contact. We're planning Part 3 for Inauguration Day in January, and we'd like to know what issues you'd like us to cover related to immigrants and elections. Go to radioproject.org and let us know. Special thanks to the Beacon Journalism crowdfunding platform and everyone who contributed to the campaign for this series. Thanks also to the Berwick-Daigle Family Foundation. Our executive director is Lisa Redman, producers Anita Johnson, Marie Cha, and RJ Lozada. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager. I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.